Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Richard Lummis is on assignment this week, so I'm joined by Nick Gallo, and we take a look at Doris Kearns Godwin's class on leadership in the master class. We consider leadership lessons from Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and Abraham Lincoln. This is Tom Fox, and I am joined today by Nick Gallo, and we are going to take things a little bit different direction because we both recently took the uh, virtual or online master class by Doris Kearns Godwin on leadership, and uh, we both found it to be just a great class. She focuses on presidential leadership. And so I asked Nick if maybe we could do a podcast on it, and he thought that was a a good idea. So we thought we would visit with you all today about some of the lessons we learned and how really the study of leadership at any level uh, can bring lessons lessons learned down to you in whatever leadership role you have, leadership issues you have, or just the way you conduct yourself on a day-to-day basis. So Nick, that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, uh, welcome, and uh, thanks for taking the time to visit with me today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm excited to uh, to dive into this topic. This uh, this course was super interesting, and uh, I feel like I really really learned a lot about these presidents that were really just kind of two dimensional um, for me before I uh, before I got to know them a bit. So uh, the master class is uh, I always lo- love plugging people who don't pay me for plugs. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a voracious learner. And the master class popped up, I guess, about uh, maybe 18, 24 months ago. And they've been adding uh, classes. I've taken all of the leadership classes, the writing classes, the history classes. They're far beyond that as well. But those are the things that interest me. And they have really some top-notch practitioners um, in all fields. So, uh, But I wanted to say a few words about Doris Kearns Godwin. Um, she came on my radar when I was in college. And she was Doris Kearns back then. It was before she got married. And uh, she wrote uh, uh, a book uh, entitled Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream. And that book came out in 77. Um, I think I was at Rockhorn College. And I am, am a huge Lyndon Johnson fan. Uh, he may be one of the world's biggest SOBs, but he's my SOB. So take that. Uh, and he's a fellow Texan. Uh, nevertheless, um, she had been a White House fellow. She uh, Johnson invited her to uh, come to the uh, uh, Johnson's Ranch in Johnson City, Texas, and she there helped him work on his memoirs, but also uh, ended up writing this uh, biography of him. And the thing that struck me about that book and has struck me about all of her books is that she um, – that we're going to talk about throughout this podcast is she really gets gets down uh, to where you feel like you know the person and you know them on a personal level. And the, the chances of me ever knowing a president 
very closely on a personal level are probably nil, but I felt like I knew Johnson from that book and then her subsequent book. So, uh, also, she's a huge baseball fan, so uh, that's a big one in my eyes as well. She was on Ken Burns' series Baseball about her experiences as a child when she would read the box score to her father, uh, and I'm a huge box score guy, still am. So uh, that resonates with me. She's won the Pulitzer Prize. She's won National Book Awards. Uh, she is, a, I think, a well-known uh, professional historian, a popular historian, uh, and uh, someone that uh, I really enjoy reading because she's a, a great writer. Um, so that's a little bit about Tom on Doris Kearns Godwin. Really, any thoughts uh, from you, Nick, on your perspective? Yeah, you know, I've never read those tomes that she writes. Uh, I'm, I added a couple to my list because they're super interesting. I mean, after kind of going through this course, uh, it definitely sparked my interest in kind of diving deeper. But, you know, what you said about her, I think, was carried through to this course. I mean, this was a little brief survey of these four presidents. Um, and I feel like she very quickly is able to, to your point, kind of pull the humanity uh, of them off the page. And you can kind of, you know, add some three-dimensionality to them. And you feel like, okay, I kind of get what kind of a guy this person was. And you can kind of feel like you get to know him a little bit. So, um I just found her to be very kind of thoughtful and just the way that she was able to, um, you know, she didn't make it very stuffy. She made it very, um, you know, she kind of brought these guys alive, which made it very relatable. So, Nick, I wanted to start with kind of the basic question. Uh, and I don't know where you answered this before you started this course. But years ago, I was under the impression, now I think mistakenly, that leaders, great leaders were really born. And um, that whatever skills I had uh, may or may not translate into great leadership, but I, I was stuck with the skills I had and they couldn't be improved. Uh, I, I've really come around to thinking now that that's incorrect, that you have to have certain things that I think we're going to talk about throughout this series. But um, so let me just pitch the question to you. Are great leaders born or made? Yeah, I think I was like you. I think uh, for a long time, I thought that they were just made or that they were just born like you're just born with these certain skills. And, you know, this is a great leader. And hey, if you if you don't have these things, then you're never going to ascend to that to that position. Um, I think I'm like you also, Tom, that I'm on the other side of the fence now. I think that they're definitely made. Um, I think the skills that go into leadership are all kind of learned skills and they're skills that, that like we can hone. I mean, it's kind of like this, right? You may have a certain kind of, uh, you know, artistic inclination, or you may be a sort of natural athlete, but you're never going to ascend to the majors without like a lot of practice, a lot of refinement of those skills. And I think the same holds true for leadership. You may be a naturally gregarious person or a naturally extroverted person, but that's not enough to sort of become a great leader. Um, some of the qualities of a great leader, I think, are all learned things like empathy. Like, how do you learn to listen actively? How do you create an environment that lets people uh, fail? How do you create an environment that lets people put their neck out and walk through walls with you for you or an environment that allows for people to debate you? Um, and separately, I think there's no archetype of a leader um, that is the same across across personalities. Right. You see, I mean, even these four. Right. This whole course was about Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, FDR, and um, LBJ. And all these guys, I think, are phenomenal leaders, um, and they're all extremely, extremely different. So how then could they become great leaders if they all don't have the same qualities? Well, it's because they've learned those basic leadership qualities and were able to fill in the gaps uh, with people around them to become you know, that more impactful leader. So I think they're absolutely made, not born. 
So in terms of uh, one of the things that uh, struck me later in life was, uh, I believe it was Malcolm Cladwell, he talked about the 10,000-hour rule. And to really master a subject matter, uh, an expertise, uh, you had to spend 10,000 hours in it. And uh, one of the uh, businesses, he, I guess you would say, he pointed to is the Beatles and the time they spent uh, both in Liverpool and in Hamburg. But he pointed to others, baseball players and others. Is, is that type of hard work something you see consistently in uh, the leaders? And maybe we should just name the four who she talked about. Yeah. Um, so she talked about Abraham Lincoln. She talked about Teddy Roosevelt. She talked about uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And she talked about uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And I think you nailed it, Tom. Like that hard work, that intentional work, um, is the key to it. And that's really what struck me with all these guys is they were really extremely hard workers. Um, the mission that they were on was bigger than themselves. The impact that they were trying to make was bigger than uh, their own sort of physical limitations. And they pushed themselves beyond those physical limitations time and time again to handle a certain issue or write a certain speech or do whatever they needed to do. And that is a very, uh, that's a very important piece of the puzzle because to your point, I mean, listen, there's a ton of people in the professional world, for example, who can't type. They spend their entire day on the computer. Um, so they've spent more than 10,000 hours, for example, uh, you know, hunting and pecking. But it's that intentional work, it's that intentional practice during those 10,000 hours that really help you accelerate. And I think each one of these guys, you saw them apply efforts toward getting better, toward being a better leader, intentionally trying to make that impact. And I think it showed up in the legacy that they left behind. So, Nick, one of the things that I saw uh, in these four leaders was certainly the ability to inspire men and women to follow them, but also uh, to not simply uh, lead based upon a plan and do more than react to circumstances that came up, but actually embrace the unexpected and be able to pivot uh, when new information became available, when new data became available. And that seems to be a critical element. I suppose that uh, everyone now understands that because we're recording this in uh, August of 2020 when all of us are living through something that none of us had experienced before. Um, at least I don't know anyone who was living during the uh, Spanish influenza. But uh, uh, maybe there are those people who could counsel us. But we are, we are uh, certainly in unexpected and uncharted territories for businesses as diverse as my podcast business and your hotline business and everything else in between. And so um, the ability to embrace that unexpected and, and not only to – to use it, but actually, or uh, to overcome it, but to use it to their advantage seems to me to be uh, something. But I would also say that what I saw was preparation. And so, right. if I could use the example of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he was heavily influenced by a book by Alfred Mahan about uh, the influence of sea power upon history. And that influence was to have a series of coaling stations which was the fuel in the uh, 1900s or 1800s for ships around the world. And uh, from these coaling stations, the U.S. Navy could uh, then have, if not command of the seas, travel on the seas. Well, he had that philosophy in place. And when the war with Spain started, he was able to uh, cable Admiral Dewey, 
who I believe was in Hong Kong, to go to immediately to Manila Bay and have a stunning victory with a speed that was unseen at that time, which was 1898. Uh, A lot of people call that luck, but it's been my experience that when uh, preparation meets opportunity, luck tends to occur. And that's that embrace of the unexpected. But it's an embrace because you're prepared. Uh, Would you find that to be consistent with some of these other presidents? Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally spot on. Um, you know, many times what looks like luck and looks like ser- serendipity only looks that way because, to your point, you don't see those hours of preparation and all those all those moves that happen behind the scenes to allow, in this case, that victory to take place. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that that foresight you see throughout all these guys like. These were not kind of guys playing whack-a-mole. These were guys playing chess, and they were thinking several moves ahead, and they were they understood the sort of social dynamics and sort of the countrywide dynamics that they were up against, and I think they did a lot of smart things to kind of uh, get, it, get out ahead of the curve. I think one thing that Lincoln did, which I thought was super smart, uh, both kind of from a, a political standpoint but also from an operational or a functional standpoint, was, you know, when he won the presidency, he basically took all of his rivals and he made— those guys, his main advisors. And that gave him some great insights, not only into what the positions of these various sort of groups around the country were, um, but it also helped him craft a solution that was going to work with the, you know, constraints that everybody was kind of bringing to the table. So had he not done that, then, you know, when it came time for him to push, push his Emancipation Proclamation, it maybe wouldn't have been thoughtful, as thoughtful, or it wouldn't have gone off as successfully as it did, uh, because he didn't, you know, because he wouldn't have done that sort of that pre-work or that that kind of homework to to prepare him to be a success when that came out. Nikki, you bring up a great point, and obviously with uh, Godwin's book, A Team of Rivals, uh, she wrote extensively about that. It was a fabulous book. If you haven't read it, I recommend it to everyone. But having not so much rivals, but having people who are not only very smart but can fill in gaps that you might not. Uh, have expertise in seems to also be a common theme. Is that something you saw as well? Yeah, um, I think there was two good examples of that. Um, you know, Lincoln Lincoln was was a good example of that. You know, he's someone who, I don't know, he seemed like a bright eye and bushy tail kind of guy. You know, he could only see the good in people. Uh, he had a real hard time saying no. He had a real hard time sending those hot letters. He had a hard time firing people and stuff like that. So I think because of that and, and that, that level of self-awareness that he had, he knew that he needed to fill in, fill in the, uh, the blanks. Um, and I think he got, Stat, you know, Stanton to come in there and be his kind of heavy, to be his heavy hand and to, you know, pull the trigger when he wasn't able to. Um, but again, like, there's no sort of fully actualized man or fully actualized person. Uh, there's no sort of God man who can hit all these qualities and live those things out. So part of our job, I think, as leaders is to understand, hey, I'm great at this. I'm OK at this. I stink at this. Well, let me find somebody who's going to be a real compliment to me so that my, quote unquote, administration and whatever sort of, quote unquote, presidency I'm in um, can be as effective as possible. But if you're trying to do it all yourself, I think none of these guys did it all themselves. All these guys were. Uh, low ego enough to surround themselves with smart people to compliment them and to help push their mission forward. And Nick, that brings up a point I wanted to, to maybe spend a little time uh, exploring, which was decision-making and managing in a crisis. I think that all of these leaders had good decision-making skills. And by that, I mean, they had a process they followed. They may not have always reached the correct decision, but they followed a rigorous process. And although not uh, in this uh, ser- series, uh, 
my favorite, one of my favorite stories around the Cuban Missile Crisis was that when Kennedy asked Eisenhower for advice, Eisenhower said, what was your decision-making process? He was more concerned about the vetting process. Were all opinions put on the table? Were they thoroughly vetted? Were they thoroughly discussed? And that's really what I saw here. I was the most familiar with uh, FDR because I've studied him the most, but also uh, with uh, LBJ and his passage of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, he didn't command the field. He certainly took in the advice of others. Uh, he rejected some advice to go further. Uh, he did what he thought he could get uh, get through the Congress. Uh, but once he decided on that, he pushed it through. But FDR, in the Depression, it seemed, in the early part of the Depression, he was really willing to try a wide variety of things. Uh, some worked, some didn't. Some are still with us today uh, in terms of government agencies. Um, if you want to think, um, uh, the best example I can think of right now is Hoover Dam. Uh, started during the Depression, uh, still supplying power to uh, Las Vegas, Southern California, and Arizona today. Uh, and um, but also his decision making during World War II, uh, because he had a fabulous, uh, fabulous advisors. Uh, General Marshall was the chief of staff of the uh, Army and really led the discussions around uh, the war effort. Uh, he was, uh, Marshall was probably an intellectually far above um, FDR, but FDR uh, was able to utilize Marshall in a way that helped him uh, manage during those crises. And, and I guess when you look at crisis presidencies, it doesn't get any more crises than Abraham Lincoln. So what were your thoughts on Lincoln, maybe? So, I mean, again, you know, I think they both, you know, what, I, what struck me about FDR and Lincoln is that they both seem to be comfortable enough in their own skin to surround themselves with people that would lead toward the possibility of having... Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening so to this episode of Global Gawk High Podcast on Business Leadership. You know, what's our process to come if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Please check out our research for additional reading if you're interested in finding out more about William Howard Taft. We found the research for this podcast fascinating. I hope you'll join us again for our next series of episodes where we're going to take a deep dive into Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we look forward to visiting with you again. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I didn't you know, I think like a yes men culture, a culture where it's really about, you know, adulation toward the boss, so to speak, those lead to a lot of really bad outcomes. And I think it's easy when you're the president, the most powerful man in the world, uh, to kind of fall into that. And I think the steps that 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 these great presidents, these great leaders took to prevent that from happening, I think not only is, uh, you know, a wise move, it also led to some really great outcomes for him. One of the things uh, that struck me, Nick, was how three or, or, or at least two of these presidents dealt with tragedy, personal tragedy, in a way. And I'm going to throw LBJ in, because not because it's tragedy, but it impacted him so much. And what I want to talk about is uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, when he was 22, lost his wife uh, in childbirth. Yeah, right. Two days later, his mother died. 
Right. Uh, FDR obviously had polio uh, when he was a young man. Uh, LBJ's first job out of college uh, at, was as a teacher in a still small town in South Texas called Catula. And there he taught uh, uh, Mexican-Americans, Hispanics, uh, in a Hispanic school. And all three of those events really not so much shaped them going forward, but influenced them in ways to create lasting impact. So with uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, to, um, and this is, uh, I've studied Roosevelt fairly extensively, this is the least written part about his life. He did not really write about his grief, but this is when he went to Montana and became mm-hmm. a rancher. And his experiences in working through that grief in Montana directly led to his creation of the National Park System. Um, FDR uh, took polio and recognizing it, it is a great disability. He did not let that stop him. But more importantly, he took uh, the shame of having a disease mm-hmm. like that at that point in time and was public with it and public with cures. So it really moved forward, I think, that conversation. And Johnson, what he found was that he could take a school of very poor uh, children whose parents were basically farm workers, uh, uh, fruit pickers and onion pickers in South Texas. And with training and education, he created a uh, state-winning debate team. And that educational experience stuck with him in many ways was the foundation of his work in the Great Society. So some of these early events uh, really shaped all three of these men in ways that uh, uh, when they got into power, they they uh, used these lessons uh, going forward. Nick, one of the other things that struck me was that they were in large part able to communicate. Um, mm-hmm. The FDR had fireside chats. Uh, TR, uh, Th- Theodore Roosevelt, he was the, the master of uh, PR at the turn of the century. He could work uh, the press in a way that no one else had really seen, and he did it by outworking everyone and giving more press conferences than everyone. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like Twitter today. Uh, right. So, uh, And here I want to maybe ask you about one of the things that struck me about you and your brother, and you seem to do these I don't know if they're leadership lessons or, uh, but you do these uh, video recorded sessions with your entire compliance line team and you talk about some points and you put them up on LinkedIn. And I find this to be incredibly powerful communication sessions, uh, not only to the people who are in the room with you guys, but also for the rest of us who view them. So I was wondering if you might just say a few words about what you, what lessons you learned from communications and how do you guys use that in your business today? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. Um, So the thing that kept kind of popping out to me during this course was like the key to this whole thing is understanding, understanding human nature. Um, I think all these guys, depending on their circumstance and the technology at that time, to your point, were really great communicators. And that probably is a big basis for why they are continued to be thought of as like the great presidents. You know, I mean, look there's kind of different classes of of presidents. And I think these guys are kind of among some of the best. And part of it, I think, can be attributed to that that storytelling. But, you know, to your question, the basis of all kind of human relationship is communication. 
um, there's a certain kind of dignity that we're trying to instill in our organization. We want everyone here to kind of feel a part of it. And I think, you know, it could kind of be pulling a, uh, you know, a sheet uh, from the, you know, fireside chat book of music, because, you know, what that accomplished um, is what we're trying to accomplish with these sessions, right? We want to give people a, uh, a view into what's going on. We want to give them um, some transparency into sort of the challenges that we're facing into um, the priorities that we have, not just to keep them in, in the loop, but so that they can be eyes wide open and understand how their particular function fits into this broader picture that we're, um, that we're trying to paint or this, this broader goal that we're trying to ascend toward. So, um, you know, creating that kind of uh, communication, creating that kind of a conversation is going to start with leadership. It's going to start with being able, uh, a willingness to sort of open up the kimono, so to speak, and share the challenges that are, you know, that the company or the org organization is facing. And I think there's a little, you know, for us, at least, there was a little bit of a, of a fear of to, you know, a little bit of a hump to get over, um, to start sharing those things, because, you know, sometimes you're talking about something that that's not going well, or sometimes you're talking about, um, you know, a failure or whatever, but we have to be able to talk about the full range of uh, human experience or the full range of organizational uh, outcome, because that's the reality. Reality is our friend. And, you know, we're all kind of climbing the same mountains subject to the same, you know, weather, weather patterns. So that, that drive of trying to, you know, celebrate the wins, but also talk about the failures, I think reinforces to the team that, Hey, you can stick your neck out. Failure is okay. Uh, life is a lot more like baseball than it is like brain surgery. You can, you know, strike out two out of three times and still wind up in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, just talking about that continually and keeping that cadence of that conversation going allows for a lot of, uh, you know, inclusion, allow, allows for a lot of, um, um, you know, I guess ownership is really what we're trying to go for. And I think that's what, um, that's what you know, the fireside chats were able to, to do for the country at large, everyone kind of saw a glimpse into, you know, what's going on in Washington and what's, you know, what's actually facing the company and, Hey, we're all in this thing together. It's a really powerful mechanism that I think a lot of companies sh should start doing because you just, you, you, the benefits are just multiplicative. Nick, um, perhaps we could end up with uh, some final thoughts on either or any or all, I suppose, lessons learned, things that struck you as the most important, most significant uh, things you didn't know that uh, you found particularly fascinating or things that you're actually going to incorporate into uh, your repertoire moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Um, so, you know, I feel like I just kind of scratched the surface on a, on a couple of these guys that I didn't really know that much about. So um, this definitely has prompted me to like, I want to, I, I want to learn, learn some more about these guys and kind of the challenges that they were facing. I think I was, um, I have a new appreciation for some of the parallels um, that we're going through right now. Um, you know, the country has gone through sim similar things at kind of the turn of, uh, of the last century. Uh, the pace of life was speeding up. Um, there were a lot of changes going on, a lot of social changes. So a lot of the things and challenges that we're facing have been, um, you know, kind of rippled through our country before. So there's probably a lot to learn by, you know, looking back there, but, um, you know, the big kind of leadership takeaways that I, that I came away with, are first, you know, you have to give people room to fail. Um, you have to give them um, that safety in the group to uh, push the envelope and bring their unique selves to whatever process or whatever, you know, goal you, you're running after. And I think the other one is to really know your weakness. 
or weaknesses. And there's no shame in having weaknesses. Um, there's shame in hiding those weaknesses or there's shame in not, you know, having a enough self-awareness to even recognize that that weakness is in place. But once you can recognize that that weakness is there, well, you can begin to kind of fill your team out with some complementary folks who, again, can kind of create that, uh, that human synergy and you can really multiply your impact. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I really loved this course. I thought it was uh, super interesting. Um, really, I haven't taken a course on here that, that I didn't learn a ton from. Um, but this, but this leadership uh, and getting this glimpse of these, of these presidents who really, I just kind of saw on, uh, you know, in statues and in, you know, two dimensional pages was uh, super, super insightful. One of the things that struck me that uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Nick, was just how hard these guys worked. Yeah. And they didn't work start working that hard when they got to be president. They worked that hard all their lives. That's a good point. And I, uh, once again, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, I saw uh, his daily diary, and it was filled when he wasn't meeting, he was reading. He was reading either uh, intellectual tracts, he was reading books, reading mm-hmm. events, um, and he was always learning, uh, ravenously curious but uh, mm-hmm. each one, I mean, uh, Johnson had just unbounded, unlimited energy. Lincoln used to go uh, at night when he wasn't receiving uh, petitioners at the White House would go to the war office to read cables from uh, the uh, generals who sent them in. And FDR uh, also worked uh, extraordinarily hard. So uh, each one of these individuals, um, and I think it led to something that I've always uh or I felt is uh, critical for my personal growth, which is continual learning. And yeah. that uh, if you really stop learning, then uh, you really put yourself at a disadvantage. And um, frankly, one of the things I love about podcasting is I get to learn a lot. I get to right. meet cool people and I get to learn about things that uh, I really didn't have that much experience on. And frankly, I think that's how you and I met. It was through uh, yeah podcast with geo and then you and i hooked up for podcasts so um that sort of continual uh thirst for knowledge continual curiosity certainly for a chief compliance officer or general counsel type i think that's uh, an incredibly important part of uh, how you can continue to succeed even if you've reached a level of success where you think because they planted the gold bars on your shoulders uh, (laughs) you've made it yeah it's a uh you know, that's saying like, if a shark stops swimming, it dies. Like if we stop learning, we die. And, um, I love the way you put that because yeah, yeah. Like Lincoln didn't just start working hard when he became president. These guys all had this sort of voracious drive to succeed, this voracious sort of appetite for learning. And, you know, they were really pursuing, you know, I think what struck me is like, they were all pursuing something that was way bigger than themselves. And because it was bigger than themselves, it took all the effort that they could give. And they were super diligent and kind of pouring that effort out. Um, and the other thing I think I've just been kind of struck with during this course is like, you're never going to be great unless you're trying to be great. Like these guys put a lot of effort into being a great president. They put a lot of effort into being a great leader and uh, making a big impact on the company. None of these things just sort of randomly happened, right? There was a ton of effort that, that went into it and that purposeful focused, uh, attention and that purposeful, um, effort is, a totally necessary ingredient if ever there's going to be that massive impact made. I mean, obviously, there's still the you have to be successful and it has to be smart and you have to, you know, the stars have to align in some cases. But the 
absolute prerequisite ingredient to your to your point, Tom, is that is that hard work and that pursuit of continual improvement. We both enjoyed this series, and frankly, I've enjoyed this podcast a lot, and I'm ready for this podcast. Maybe we can. Uh, Me too. Uh, you can pick one out next time, and we'll uh, do a podcast on it. Deal. Let's do it, man. This is uh, it's so fun, kind of drawing these these parallels between the game we're in and these and these other masters that have uh, you know kind of gone before us. So yeah, I love it. This was a definite hi- highlight of my Monday. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Twelve O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.